on this episode of The Brothers Mysterium. When his patients came in, he would physically feel what they were feeling, experience their pain. So I have multiple forms of synesthesia, and one of them is kind of the color, number, color, letter uh, type. It sounds like an X-Files episode. Because I think one of the things that throws people off is they think that I'm what I'm claiming to be as a psychic or kind of a medical intuitive, and I'm definitely not. And he was able to go in, nobody knew what was wrong, uh, why this individual was behaving differently, and he was able to say, like he said, he felt like the tightness in the chest and all this going on, and was able to say, like, this is what's happening. It, it really is. It's just so humbling how like stupid and imperfect the brain is. My brother and I have always been intrigued by the unexplainable. Like many, we're fascinated with stories of the supernatural, fringe science, and modern-day mysteries. Though we've seen no first-hand proof of its existence, our minds remain open to the possibility. Unsatisfied with the so-called evidence on television and the internet, we are choosing to take matters into our own hands and conduct our own interviews and research. Now we're on a quest to speak with as many people as we can and hear the stories of these events from those who have lived them. No Hollywood effects or exaggerations and no hidden agenda. We invite you to listen and decide what and who you believe. We are the Brothers Mysterium. Hello and welcome to The Brothers Mysterium. My name is Tommy, alongside my brother Eric. Hey, yo. We are The Brothers Mysterium, and today we have a kind of a unique topic, something different. We like to shake things up. I would say this is more of kind of the fringe science realm, not so much ghosts or uh, the paranormal. And what happened was a friend of mine sent me an article about a doctor who claimed to feel the pain of others. When his patients came in, he would physically feel what they were feeling, experience their pain. So uh, I was intrigued. It sounded weird. We looked into it, and we were able to reach out to this doctor, Dr. Joel Salinas, and he was able to sort of describe exactly what was happening, how it happened, and if indeed this ability was true. All right. The Brothers Hey, it's Tommy. How are you? Good, good. Not too long ago, Tommy conducted this interview, the one that you're about to hear, by making a phone call up to Massachusetts. Um, uh, is this sound quality okay? Yeah, it sounds great. And the topic for this episode is one that we actually became aware of through a book. So it's doubly awesome to have the author of that book here on today's show. Yeah, I think you guys are doing something really interesting. So um, I'm, I was totally open to, to interviewing. My name is Dr. Joel Salinas. I am a neurologist at Harvard Medical School, and I see patients and do research at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, whether you think the topic of today's show is supernatural, or you believe it's a newly discovered and somewhat mysterious, albeit naturally occurring phenomenon of the human nervous system, well, that's up to you. But the fact of the matter remains. This condition is certainly real, and that condition is called the mirror touch. So mirror touch essentially means that when I see uh, 
let somebody else move or get touched or or whether they're in pain or whatever, I, I physically feel it on my body. So if you're having a panic attack, I feel like I'm having a panic attack. Um, it ties kind of under this umbrella concept of synesthesia. You heard him correctly. Synesthesia. It's not the easiest term to pronounce, but essentially what it means is the blending of the senses. The etymology of the term synesthesia comes to us from two words out of ancient Greece. Syn. Which means together. Anesthesia. Which means sensation. So essentially kind of the mixing of the senses and sensations. And what we know from people who have synesthesia is that um, essentially brain scans show that people's brain areas that are responsible for senses just seem to be wired more closely together and tend to activate together. So people with synesthesia may experience colors with letters and numbers. Red, A, yellow, B, green. Or images with sounds or tastes with textures and all sorts of kind of odd combinations. And what you see is that about four out of 100 people have some form of synesthesia. And typically you find it in artists and musicians. Uh, and examples include Tori Amos, Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, Lord, Skrillex, Kanye West. You could be my black cake mouse tonight. And it, it seems to be just a very provocative kind of neurologic trait that helps artists kind of push the boundaries and help us to think and feel in, in new and different ways. And um, you even see it in physicists like Richard Feynman. The physics is not mathematics, and mathematics is not physics. Richard Feynman was a theoretical physicist that worked on quantum mechanics, quantum electrodynamics, and even helped to develop the atomic bomb. And uh, writers like uh, Vladimir Nabokov. I consider Anna Karenin the supreme masterpiece of 19th century literature. Vladimir Nabokov was a Russian-American author who was popular in the early to mid-20th century. His most famous book was called Lolita. He said his S was this curious mixture of Azul and Mother of Pearl. We, meanwhile, my S is kind of like a yellow-orange false wash kind of a color. Um, so I have multiple forms of synesthesia, and one of them is kind of the color, number, color, letter uh, type. Um, but another form of synesthesia I have is this mirror touch. What it essentially blends together visual information and my brain's kind of touch areas. So for all of us, when we see other people kind of moving, getting touched or in pain, our vision parts of our brain are activating, um, but so is our touch part of our brain. So what our brain is essentially doing is creating almost like a 3D virtual reality simulation of the people that we're seeing around us. <laughs> Uh, that it's going on. 
But every once in a while, that activity becomes so strong, so heightened that you do experience it in your conscious perception. So, um, for example, if you see someone um, suddenly get tackled or trip and fall and hit their face all of a sudden, or, um, you know, like the, the stunt videos. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome to Jackass. kind of fall from a roof and uh, land on their neck or something like that. Well, that cringe feeling that you get, um, that's partially that mirroring kind of network in our brain that becomes so heightened that you experience um, the feeling as if it is going to happen to you. But in two out of 100 people who have what's called meritotinesthesia, that kind of mirroring activity is so high that it's conscious all the time, nonstop. And what's believed to be the cause for that is maybe these vision and touch areas are more wired together. Um, but what we see on kind of functional MRIs and structural MRIs is that those parts of the brain are actually larger and more active. And then another really interesting part of it is that we all have parts of our brain that help us tell the difference between our own physical bodies and the physical body of people that we're looking at. But in people who have neurotoxinesthesia, those areas of the brain are actually smaller and less active. So this mirroring activity ends up being really heightened and this boundary between one person and another ends up being blurred, essentially. But there are some cases, um, like myself, where that the boundary between um, myself and other people isn't the only boundary that's blurred. It's essentially anything that's me and anything that's both well, me and anything that's not me is what's blurred. Um, and so, essentially, what my brain is constantly doing reflexively, out of like no control of my own, it's trying to map what I, what information is coming through my eyes as if I were it. So it's almost like attempting to create this sense of oneness with the universe that people experience when they have like a mystical or religious experience. Or like in a drug-induced state, there's actually a lot of overlaps with synesthesia in general with, um, with the experience of LSD use. Um, it's believed that, you know, that so LSD works on what's the serotonin type 2A receptors or 5-HTA 2A receptors. And it's believed that those are some of the receptors that might be involved in synesthesia as well. So it, it kind of creates not just kind of crossing of sensations, but also crossing of the, of the perception of what's you kind of blurring this mental body map. So like if I see like the, the Statue of Liberty, my brain simulates as if uh, what I'm looking at at the Statue of Liberty is my reflection and I am the Statue of Liberty. And so the touch parts, the uh, parts of my brain will activate and essentially try to simulate a, a mental body map. So I feel as if I am the Statue of Liberty. That includes the feeling of cloth over kind of the top part of my feet, the holding of a tablet in my arms, the sensation of a crown over my head. And this all happens totally reflectively. It's just like, it really is just like a glitch in the, the programming and wiring of my brain. Um, and, it, and it goes on all the time. Though, it's um, my attention 
just like everybody else, um, really has a, a big role in how um, how vivid or how kind of prominent it is in my mind. And I like to think about it kind of like we all have this mental computer desktop and mirror touch synesthesia, like the other forms of synesthesia, just another window that's open. It's a, it's a process that's running. And if I kind of draw my attention away from it or there isn't anything particularly we call salient, like anything that has a, a particular amount of emotional intensity or newness or surprise to it, that window is essentially minimized. So it's constantly affecting all the other programs and processes and my, my, my bandwidth and everything on, on my computer processing. Um, but it, the window's minimized. Right. But if I really draw my focus to it, it's like maximizing the window again. It's a cool analogy. Um, and now does that only work for the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of David, because they're human shaped? Like if you're looking at a tree, do you start having a feeling of having roots in the grass and, and leaves and stuff? Or is it only things that are you know, human shaped. Yeah, it you know it gets it gets weirder and weirder the further from 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 what from a human. Um, so um, things that look humanoid are are pretty vivid, and then the less humanoid it gets, the less vivid it is. But it's still there. So, for example, I'm really um, really attuned to. Have you heard of the term pareidolia? I have not. For the rest of us that are also likely to be unfamiliar with that term. Pareidolia is the phenomenon in which the human mind perceives patterns or the likeness of a familiar object in random data or other arbitrary objects. As an example, if you look at an electrical socket, it looks kind of like a, like a surprised face, right? Right. Or take a Rorschach test in which people perceive all kinds of things out of what is really just a bunch of random ink blots. And that's kind of the same phenomenon that's used to kind of explain when you see like a rabbit in the clouds or people see the face of... Um, of someone that they know in like a piece of toaster or in like a tree bark. This also includes things like constellations. And let's not forget about that alien face that's embedded on the surface of Mars. That's pareidolia. Okay. Um, and my, my brain, without me being particularly conscious of it, will will see that information and just run it through the networks of, oh yeah, those are eyes, that's the mouth. And I'll have this perception that I'm like shaped oddly. And then I just have to, it just takes me a second to be like, oh, it's because I'm looking at this toaster that looks like a person's face. Right. Um, and then it, as it gets further away from a human, there's still some extrapolating there. So like if I were to look at a glass of water, I feel as if I have kind of water running up along kind of the corners of my mouth from side to side, kind of like I'm almost peeking over, over the water. Or if I look at a light post, I feel like my neck is long and my head is at the top. It, it really is. It's just so humbling how like stupid and imperfect the brain is. Right. <laughs> that, that it that it does all these things so reflexively, and kind of misses the point <laughs> right. more, more, most of the time. I mean, this is kind of what is believed to be uh, behind things like um, well, not neurotypes and ACs specifically, but it, it kind of ties to things like the the Ramsey effect, or I think the other term is the the four effect. But essentially, given enough random data points, our brain will, will try to draw a pattern to kind of create a story around it. Because that's just how our brain works. It just tries to create stories to be more efficient. We only have so many so many calories that uh, we have available to expend, and our brain uses most of it. So it tries to find shortcuts. And, you know, the whole uh, conversation about uh, we only use 10% of our brains. Right. Um, but that's, as you know, it's a, it's a total myth. Um what our, our brains are trying to do uh, most of the time is 
trying to work as efficiently as possible. So it's not like we only have access to 10% of the brain. We actually have access to all of our brain. Um, it's just that at any given time, um, only certain networks are, are firing across our brain, but every fraction of a fraction of a second that's going on. So you can imagine there's all these parallel circuits going on um, all the time. Um, so certainly 100% of your brain, like all the neurons aren't firing because if all your neurons are firing, that would be called a seizure. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, but um, we are are trying to be as efficient as possible. And so our brain does all these tricks to try to find the most efficient way to, to process information and draw explanations. I mean, that's kind of the basis behind optical illusions. Almost all optical illusions is your brain trying to draw a shortcut. Right. Um, to, to, to reasoning something and putting a story around it, even though it's not grounded in reality. It's just creating the perception of it. But the crazy thing is, is because our perception of reality is so based on our senses, it might as well be reality. Yeah. Yeah, big debate on this show is definitely what is reality, so... Yeah. At some level, it, it, it brought me into medicine, and, and part of it was, you know, I, I, as I had the mirrored feelings of people in distress or in pain or suffering around me, as I would help them relieve, relieve some of that suffering in whatever way that was, I also was a part of that. I also benefited from it. So it's kind of this kind of balanced way of being really selfish and really selfless at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that, yeah, that really drew me into medicine. And then as I learned about neurology, I mean, what's not to love about neurology? It's just, the brain is just so amazing. It's, I call it the motherboard of reality. I mean, the, right. the brain has such a strong influence on our entire universe. And as a neurologist, I get to, in even a small way, get to influence someone's entire reality, someone's entire universe. I mean, that's, that's just amazing yeah, to have that kind of, kind of privilege yeah, to be able incredible. to see a lot of people's world that way. So I, I, I couldn't think of another specialty for me. And I think one of the things that I love about the brain is if you think about, you know, how we transplant kidneys and we transplant hearts and, and lungs, even if we could transplant the brain, you wouldn't want to transplant your brain. It's your brain. Your brain is about as close feeling of me as any other part of our body. It's, it's just so, so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So, taking a step back into the past, how exactly does one figure out that he or she is a synesthete? I had no idea that I had synesthesia and that my sensory world was as different as it was. You know, I had always assumed that I was just kind of this weird kid, uh, I had this sense that I, there was something different or odd about me. Like, I was very particular about what colors I used for my for my letters. Like, A had to be red, B had to be light orange, and for one had to be a light yellow. Um, and when I would watch TV, I was always totally immersed in the contortions of the television world that um, I was watching. I, and I watched so much TV, but things like watching Roadrunner stick his tongue out, I felt like my tongue would be sticking out. If I see Wiley Coyote get hit by a truck, I feel like I'm hit by a truck. In watching TV, I just kind of always considered a given that these sensations were going on. I mean, just kind of like mirroring these aspects of, of, of where you're watching. 
Um, and I think it was in in kind of being weird, meaning reacting to things differently than other people. But I, I think that's where that that distinction really became clear. I mean, my parents. Uh, they were um, they immigrated from Nicaragua during the Nicaraguan Revolution, and you know they had, they were essentially refugees who were fortunate enough to get political asylum. But they were they worked so hard just to just to keep up. I mean, my dad was working three jobs. He worked uh, a newspaper delivery rep before the sun rose, then worked uh, as a UPS truck driver during the day and delivered Domino's pizzas during the night. My mom worked at the deli um, at a supermarket. And these are people who had come from families that were lost and then lost everything and had to start all over again. And so that kind of fatigue and that kind of sense of loss that they had as a little kid, I remember feeling it really deep in my own skin, in my own, in my bones. Right. Um, I mean, I was, that was that kid who sat around the adults and just, I was just so, so immersed in kind of the experiences of, of these older people with all these complex emotions and gestures that, that were, were sometimes calming, but also really, really sophisticated. Um, and that really, that kind of experience played its way throughout my life in terms of um, kind of the things that I was drawn to and pulled away from. I think one of the things that might have been different for me compared to other marriage ethnicities is that I grew up in a house where um, anything that makes you uncomfortable or scared, that, that's where you want to be. That, that's where you're going to learn something. And so, um, like seeing a violent movie, I, I just kind of took it as, you know, I have to watch this, like I have to get over this and really be a part of what's going on and learn something from it. And that really helped me eventually when I was got into, into medicine. All right, so now let's fast forward to Dr. Salinas' first year in medical school. When I was on this uh, trip to India uh, with a group of medical students, uh, one night we, um, we were talking about meditation and the health benefits of meditation. And at some point in the conversation, one of Joel's colleagues, a guy with a background in neuroscience, begins to talk about a unique group of people that can see colors and letters and sounds. And as a result... This group has an easier time getting into deeper meditative states. And when he said that, I was struck by him mentioning it because I thought, why would he mention that? That's so ordinary. Everybody has that. So a little bit of time passes and Joel is bothered by what he perceived as the unnecessarily ordinary observation of his friend. He's wondering, why would someone be so emphatic about something so regular? So he decides to approach his friend with a very direct question. Why would you mention that? Everybody has that. To Joel's bewilderment, his friend looks him in the eyes and says, no, not everybody has that. Yeah, so it was, that was the first time that I realized that my sensory world was different and I kind of began to read up on it. And I mean, I fortunately had a background in in, in science and I was in medical school so I was looking through a lot of the scientific literature and a lot of the papers were in kind of reputable mainstream high impact journals that were peer reviewed and I went through all the methods and it all looked totally legitimate and these are like professors of psychology in big universities cognitive neuroscientists in big universities and um, the studies are replicated in multiple places so there's a lot more evidence for this than a lot of things that are in psychology right. so after researching synesthesia and realizing, okay, maybe I am a little different. Joel then finds himself in the lab of this man. 
I'd like to talk to you today about the human brain, which is what we do research on at the University of California. This is V.S. Ramachandran, a neuroscientist at the University of California. And the audio clip you're hearing is from a TED Talk that he gave about mirror neurons, which may or may not perform a role in mirror touch synesthesia. These neurons will fire when a person performs a specific action. For example, if I do that and reach and grab an apple, a motor command neuron in the front of my brain will fire. If I reach out and pull an object, another neuron will fire, commanding me to pull, my, pull that object. These are called motor command neurons that have been known for a long time. But what Rizzolati found was a subset of these neurons, maybe about 20% of them, will also fire when I'm looking at somebody else performing the same action. So here's a neuron that fires when I reach and grab something, but it also fires when I watch Joe reaching and grabbing something. And this is truly astonishing because it's as though this neuron is adopting the other person's point of view. Anyway. Back to V.S. Ramachandran's lab, where he and his graduate student are running tests on Dr. Joel Salinas. They were asking me about my synesthesia, and uh, the grad student asked me, oh, do you happen to have mirror touch synesthesia? And I had never heard of it before, and he said, oh, yeah, it's just when, when you see other people get touched, you feel like you're touched on, on yourself just by watching them. And in my mind, I thought to myself, yeah, there's no way that that my perception of that is different from other people. I, and by then I already knew that there was a mirroring system in the brain, and I thought to myself, yeah, we all have this mirroring system, this guy's just not making any sense. And so he said, here, look. And he like ran his right finger along the right side of his face. He said, what did you feel? And I said, oh, I felt a left, kind of on the left side of my face, I felt the finger come down my face. He said, yeah, that's absolutely not normal. So that was when I first learned about the mirror-touch synesthesia, and since then I've been studied by other researchers for my types of synesthesia, including the mirror-touch synesthesia. And um, I've had a chance to, to learn a lot about it, and you know, throughout a lot of my life it's just been a process of learning um, about how my brain works and also kind of how to how to manage kind of having mirror-touch synesthesia day-to-day and also in in my clinical practice as a neurologist. Do you ever come across skeptics? Because, you know, the thought of, I'm a doctor who can feel your pain. It sounds almost, you know, <laughs> like an X-Man ability or something. Uh, are there people that kind of say, like, oh, you don't, you're making that up. You don't have that. Oh, for, for sure. But, you know, that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to talk about it for the longest time. I mean, I would talk to, um, I mean, for me, it was kind of like a second coming out. I would, um, I would talk about synesthesia with people who are, I was close to and people who I felt like were open to it, that uh, having the conversation, but I never really went into too much detail and I was never really broadcasting it. Um, but eventually one day, the science around synesthesia and mirror to synesthesia got good enough that I felt confident in it and I, that helped me feel comfortable enough talking about it. Um, and as I kind of talked about it, I was surprised with the response. People were very open to it and were fascinated by it. Uh, and that includes like, neuroscientists, psychologists, neurologists, the people that I also trust and, you know, people who are experts in multiple fields. And uh, it's it's just been very, it's just been very nice and, and pleasantly surprising to see how how open people have been for the most part. And I find that the, that the people who kind of um, balk at it the most or is, are people who hear about the, the kind of immediately or haven't heard about the science. And that's why I try to talk talk about it starting from the science, from right. the published science. Right. 
and try to kind of get to go through the neuroscience that's clear kind of what, what it really is. Because I think one of the things that throws people off is they think that I'm what I'm claiming to be is a psychic or kind of a medical intuitive, and I'm definitely not right. claiming any of those things. This is just a glitch in my brain. This is just how my brain is programmed and wired and how I perceive the world. And um, uh, I, you know, it's not like a 100% accurate thing. It's not like having like a, like this Oracle superpower (laughs) where somebody walks in the room. I'm like, you definitely have this medical condition. It's just like any of our senses. It's, um, you know, it's susceptible to being kind of misled. It can be inaccurate. And if I ignore the, my my mirror touch sensations, then, you know, I'll let it pass and, um, and that'll be the end of it. This may not always be the easiest thing to do, especially when this ability is still in its early stages. The kind of experience of mirror touch can be so heightened that it's hard for me to tell the difference between um, objective physical reality, like what I can touch in front of me, and my own internal subjective reality. Right. Um, so, like, when I saw someone die for the first time, that was incredibly intense. I was watching this man who was, um, had just had a cardiac arrest in the waiting room, and um, the kind of residents and physicians around me uh, were doing um, advanced cardiac life support. And, um, they were doing compressions. They were doing compressions. I was feeling the compressions happening on my chest. I was feeling the feeling of linoleum on my back as they slid a breathing tube down his throat. I felt the sharp feeling of a breathing tube go down my throat. And as he died, kind of felt this howling sensation in me where I had to essentially will myself to breathe. And I had to kind of get out of there, and I went into a bathroom and threw up, and I had to, like, wash my face and try to really ground myself back into my body. And I, I've, I found that the more I expose myself to these situations, the less kind of surprise there is to it and the less height, the less vivid the experience is. And so that also motivates me to kind of really, you know, I don't want to say suck it up because it, 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 that's got so many weird connotations to it, but really just have the courage to just face it and, and do it and experience it and learn it. Um, and, and not to shrug away, not to win, not to, not to look away. That's a, yeah, very fascinating. Um, so another question is, say, uh, this is kind of a weird example, but just as I'm thinking about this, if a, a patient came in and say that they had something like lung cancer and they were unaware of it or something, would you, could you feel like a, a tightness in breath or something in the lungs, even if they physically weren't, you know, uh, laboring to breathe or holding their chest like do you have to physically see somebody in pain to feel the pain or even if they're unaware of it can you say like oh i'm you know i'm thinking maybe this is going on with that person well i can give you an example so um recently i was consulted in the hospital to see a woman with cerebral palsy and because of the cerebral palsy she can't talk and she's also what's called developmentally delayed so she has cognitive impairment she has trouble thinking and so she really can't communicate at all and the reason why they consulted me is that because you know she's been in the hospital and one morning she just happens to wake up combative she's really agitated and she's swinging at her nurses and her nurses aides so they want me to come by and recommend a sedating medication to calm her as i walk into her room you know, I feel the beads of sweat on her face as if they're on my face. I feel her furrowed brow on my brow. I feel the strands of hair on her face and stuck to her forehead as if they're on my forehead. 
But then there's this other feeling uh, um, mirrored in my body that I can't shake, and that's the feeling of my chest rising um, faster than my own physical chest. It's hard for my chest to keep up. And at the same time, there's this also subtle, almost negligible feeling of my shoulder muscles kind of activating in this mirrored sensation with those breaths. And to me, the, that combination of information means that there may be something respiratory going on. And so I take a risk and I trust my body. I trust this mirror test anesthesia and I make a recommendation for a special test. And when the results come back, it turns out she has blood clots in her lungs. Oh, she, wow. wasn't, um, she wasn't fighting because she was angry. She was literally fighting for air. And that's something that without the mirror test anesthesia, I don't think I would have caught early. Uh, earlier, but you know, this isn't like a, you know, it ha the information comes through my senses, but because the information can be so subtle, it can be like anomaly detection. It can seem as if there's no there's no information, but there really is information that's being perceived. Um, but if there was zero sensory information, like if there was somebody standing behind me, and um, you know, imagine kind of in a hypothetical situation, there is really no sound, no senses. The only way that information would get to me would be through some kind of a psychic ability, which I don't have. Right. Uh, awesome. Yeah, that was a, that's a great example. When you are in a large crowd, if you're at a parade or a sporting event or something, are you able to enjoy it? Or is it almost like everywhere you look, you know, these two people are fighting, this kid's laughing, this thing is doing that. Is it like, how do you deal with uh, the overstimulation or over reflectiveness of all these people's emotions when you're in a large group yeah you know for me it's required what i call kind of like compulsory mindfulness um i always kind of hesitate using a word like mindfulness or meditation because people respond to it very differently depending on kind of um what your previous associations are with it but really what, what, what i'm referring to is being aware of where my attention is and then being very active in the process of where that attention is. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I'm in a crowd of people and I'm really stressed and really kind of anxious and I'm on total alert, my attention can be going everywhere and I can be looking at every little thing and I can feel like I'm being completely overwhelmed by all these sensations. But if I take a deep breath and just chill out and make sure that I've been, you know, getting enough sleep and trying to re kind of minimize the amount of stress in my life as possible. I have more control over where my attention is and I can just kind of draw my attention to other things that, that matter that, or, or even just drawing, drawing my attention to my, my physical body, like the feeling of my tongue in my mouth, my toes in my socks, my clothes on my skin, all those things draw my attention so that way I can focus more on the perception of myself and not the perception of all these other people. Um, and a lot of times it's just kind of getting into this zone essentially where um, all the kind of the chatter in my mind is kind of quieted down to the, to the point where all the sensations and kind of synesthetic associations are essentially almost just like, it's essentially like being, being under a waterfall. I'm just kind of passing through and just kind of going about, going about my way. Right. Certainly like if, he's, if I see a crowd of people and I really focus on a, you know, it's one, one, so one other form of synesthesia that I have, it's called ordinal linguistic personification. So ordinal linguistic personification, what it means is that um, numbers and letters have 
or my, my imperfect brain, my, my stupid brain's kind of reflexes has like personalities tied to them, just characteristics. So for example, the number three for me is not only a purple number, but it's a number that is modest and doesn't like to let on to others how smart or talented it is. Um, and it also works in the opposite direction. So when I meet people for the first time, my brain takes the visual information or whatever information that, that through my senses that comes in and translates it into in the order of like fraction of a fraction of a second into like a color and that color ties to a number and that number has the personality traits um, that my brain has just decided to ascribe or associate with that person just by uh, extrapolating or estimating. Um, and so when I'm in a crowd of people, it's almost, sometimes it's almost like I'm looking at an Excel spreadsheet and when I'm looking at Excel spreadsheet, it's like I'm looking at a crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm like really terrible at arithmetic. Because a, a simple thing like two plus two uh, equals four, reflexively in my brain doesn't make sense. Because the, the, the two is a maternal number. And two maternal numbers doesn't equal a su- blue soothing number. It's, it's just two people hanging out that are, that are similar to each other. Gotcha. Unfortunately. Not all those with mirror touch are as lucky as Dr. Joel is. One woman with mirror touch anesthesia who uh, has essentially become a shut-in, just avoiding people altogether so she doesn't have to experience these mirrored sensations. Um, she doesn't even have a dining room table in her house because she's so distraught by the sight of seeing somebody eat. Um, other mm-hmm. mirror anesthetes, even though they're not housebound, uh, they require long periods of isolation to kind of balance out these synesthetic experiences which can be really overwhelming. Um, and for me, it's something that I think drew me to medicine and helped shape me as a doctor. You know, being able to share in some of the pain and the suffering of my patients, um, I feel like they get to be a little less alone. And if you've ever been sick or known somebody that was sick, you know that that means a lot in medicine. Right. And from there, I get to reason through the experience that I'm having, whatever it is, and then respond. Uh, sometimes it's a, me- a medication or a test, but oftentimes it's just really being curious, asking questions, trying to get a better sense of where people are coming from, trying to understand whether I'm what, what I think is going on is correct or not, and then, you know, giving my time, being generous and patient and listening with intention and you know it's really just being nice being compassionate and being nice right. uh, and i and i think that that really really makes a difference in working with patients and with people um so i feel like the meritus anesthesia you know it, it has kind of its rough times but at the same time it's it's allowed me this kind of heightened state of empathy that once i've gotten to a place where i can manage it or it's not constantly causing the distress has actually been something really beneficial and, you know, frankly, quite beautiful. I mean, I get to experience physically on my body the sensation of being hugged when I see people getting hugged or, like, when a baby giggles. I mean, that's I mean, an amazing feeling to feel like you have, like, a little round face and you're, and you're laughing. I mean, it's, it's so nice. I think the meritus anesthesia for me has been more like a like a harsh but just teacher. Just because there's the there's the you know the painful aspects and the really um, kind of distressing aspects of it, but then there's also the really positive, really beautiful aspects of it. And the things that I've been able to to do and experience uh, as, as a result of it. And so I 
you know, I, I'm a firm believer in this idea of kind of writing your own narrative. And so for me, it's been seeing this as, as a gift. Right. I mean, really, I don't think, I don't like to use the term disease or condition with it because in and of itself isn't clearly a disease or a condition. I see it more as, as a trait, um, like any other brain trait that we have where it, there's the possibility for strengths and weaknesses. Um, I see merits and are similar. There are some situations where I'll, I know that I'm going to be vulnerable, but there are other situations where it can be a huge strength, and I try to really focus on those strengths and keep an eye out for the weaknesses. You know, while merits synesthetes have this automatic ability to identify with another's pain, I think empathy really begins for most of us with a willingness to try and understand what it's like to be in another person's shoes. And so my hope with this book is that readers won't just learn more about meritus anesthesia and how the brain works, but more importantly, learn about how to develop their own heightened or engaged sense of empathy. Just kind of own it for themselves as, as a kind of superpower, not just thinking about what it's like to be in another person's shoes, but could you imagine the world we lived in if we also felt what it was like to be in another person's shoes so you could then reason through that experience? And then maybe respond from a truer, more enduring place of compassion and kindness. I mean, really, if we could just be a little nicer to each other, I think that would be something amazing for our species. It'd be a shame if the kind of short time that our species has been here on this planet ends abruptly because we, we destroy ourselves. So my, my hope is that you know, we can all be just a little nicer to each other. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So that was uh, our conversation. I guess the one thing, when I told people beforehand I was going to talk to a doctor who could feel his patient's pain, everybody was like, do you believe him? Could it be possible? Is it real? Because it does sound very sci-fi-esque. Sounds a little too wild to be true. I do believe him. What are your thoughts and your impressions? Now, when you originally introduced a topic, it sounds like... An X-Files episode? Kind of, but it makes it sound like when he, like, when he walks into the room, a patient will be like, so, Dr. Ryan, he's like, shh, don't say a word. And then, like, he can feel their pain like that. Like, because obviously we usually tackle things that are more of a paranormal or fringe science kind of filing. But uh, this one, I'd say, is definitely true because I, I've read about synesthesia before and things like that. And uh, I actually get a little bit of it myself. When it comes to sounds and playing music, I can see certain shapes in my head. I mean, not specific, and I couldn't describe them to save my life. It's very, very vague. Uh, but yeah, no, I totally believe that. And another thing it made me think of, although I was told this doesn't fit in with this, although to me it kind of does, is uh, I, have, I get something called a vasovagal sync syncope. And that is when I see blood or things like that, uh, there's a malfunction in my, like, the way my heart and my blood around my body are communicating and I pass out. And it's very similar in effect to you see someone in pain and it triggers this reaction in you related to your blood flow around your body and things like that. Not exactly. It's more of a hardwired thing I was told. But now to your point, though, I did ask him if there was times where he has walked into a room and sort of diagnosed somebody. And he did share the story of where he sort of saved that one patient where... She had the pulmonary embolism, right? Right. She, yeah. like, couldn't speak. 
and he was able to go in. Nobody knew what was wrong, uh, why this individual was behaving differently. And he was able to say, like he said, he felt like the tightness in the chest and all this going on and was able to say, like, this is what's happening, which they did not know and could not have known. So in some ways, I mean, that in itself does sound a little bit, we'll say, supernatural. Well, she was giving physical signs, though. She wasn't just sitting there completely silent, right? Well, she was in distress, but they couldn't. I think that it may just play into his doctoral training here. Like he just kind of saw it, saw what she was going through. And then I guess mirrored those symptoms and knew because when I was, I was listening to it with my wife, Amy. And as soon as he began to describe like this tightness in the chest like that, she was like pulmonary embolism right away. And I know he was putting it into words, but at the same time when he was there experiencing it, he was seeing those things from this lady. Yeah, but I mean, all the other doctors could see the lady and they didn't diagnose it. He, once he felt it internally, was able to say, this is what's going on. Hmm. Makes you scratch your head. I don't know. But even he says he doesn't have psychic ability or anything like that. So. Correct. But still a cool ability. I think his outlook on it is pretty awesome. Yeah. He doesn't look at it as like, I'm a weirdo or there's something wrong with me. It's sort of, I get to experience these things in this different, unique, very cool way. Right. He was an awesome guy. We want to thank him for taking the time and sharing his story with us. For anybody out there who's interested in the book, that title is Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain by Dr. Joel Salinas, MD. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Joel Salinas, MD, all one word, J-O-E-L-S-A-L-I-N-A-S-M-D. He's on Facebook, facebook.com slash Joel Salinas, MD. Or just go to joelsalinasmd.com if you want to find out more about him and learn more about his life. And obviously, there's a ton more in-depth explanations and experiences in his book. What do you think would, would happen if we got him in front of Robert the Doll? Would he, would he feel like wow. just a doll? Or would he suddenly feel like, I'm a boy trapped inside of a doll? Hmm. Damn. Clips heard in this episode are from MTV's Jackass, produced by Dick House Productions. And Jackass's theme song is Corona by Minutemen. V.S. Ramachandran's TED Talk, entitled The Neurons That Shaped Civilization. Vladimir Nabokov on the CBC from 1950, and a lecture by Richard Feynman. Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote sound effects are from Looney Tunes. Song clips used in this episode are from Cornflake Girl by Tori Amos. Superstition by Stevie Wonder. We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Royals by Lord, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites by Skrillex, and Stronger by Kanye West. Creative Commons songs used in this episode are The Four of Us Are Dying by Nine Inch Nails and Give Me Some and The Perfect Life by Moby. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by reaching out to thebrothersmysterium at gmail.com, at Mysterium Bros, Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash thebrothersmysterium, or thebrothersmysterium.com. As always, please rate and review the show on whichever podcast provider you prefer. And of course, as always, thank you for listening to us.